All right. If you have a Bible, you can flop it open to Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. This morning, if you weren't here, we did um, a study on the intertestamental period, the 400 year of silence, which connects the dots between all that took place from the last prophet that was spoke for God, Malachi, to the opening of the New Testament here with Matthew. And um, we begin our study of the gospel, as always, with an introduction so that we're better able to understand the book and how it unfolds and the purpose and some of the key things so that we can understand the book in itself. They are all different, as we'll see. Um, the gospels in themselves, the word means um, gospel or good tithings about the salvation message of man. It's really the only good news that is available on earth because it's the only news that promises you eternal life in the presence of God by the forgiveness of your sins. A big mistake that many people make today is thinking that, well, I don't want to live forever. No, no, you're wrong. Listen, you're going to live forever. All you can do is choose where you're going to spend forever either in the presence of God or in separation from God. Um, God has made you to live forever. And in a fallen state, you will be separated from God. And in a redeemed state, then you will be joined with God. Not because you're good, but because you agree you're good for nothing. You're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And so... Um, these Gospels, they're not acts or heroic deeds only. They're not memoirs or antidotes and sayings. They're not even uh, biographies. They report the history of Jesus from an individual perspective to proclaim the kerygma, the Greek word salvation message to man. It's the proclamation of who Jesus is why he came, what he accomplished, and the benefits that it brings to lost man. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you know, um, the good news of the gospel was connected with speaking, not with writing at first. Later, the gospels were put into written form. In fact, Luke in Luke chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, that he committed to writing in order through many eyewitnesses and interviewing people and everything else. And so they went into written form. Jesus spoke and declared the words and truth of the kingdom and himself. The people heard and either responded or rejected to the truth about the kingdom and the fact that he was the king of the Jews. Ever since that day, Men and women have been making that same choice for him or against him. Either they believe the proclamation of the gospel or they reject the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I, as a pastor, as a teacher, I am a herald. The word herald in the, Old, in the New Testament sense was someone that was hired by the king or the state to make proclamations. And um, they were given the message. The message was not theirs. They were vested the authority. The authority was not theirs. They were not responsible for the response of the proclamation. They were only responsible for the proclamation 
I am not responsible for your response. I'm only responsible to proclaim the message that God has given to us and with all full authority that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to every Christian in an extended way. You don't have to just be a pastor. If you're a Christian, you are called to claim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are three synoptic gospels that were written to be declared and circulated for the salvation of sinners. But there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are called synoptic, meaning to view or to see together, each recording the life and ministry of Jesus from an individual perspective with a distinct purpose in mind. I've often illustrated it's like if there's an accident on Sierra Madre in Colorado and you've got four people sitting on four corners and they give their account of that accident. Now, when you look at all the information by the four witnesses, at times it would appear that they are contradicting each other, but they're not. It depends the angle and the perspective of their vision that they will be able to declare a certain particular that will not be seen from the other corner. They're not contradictions, but they're complementary truths to get a whole view of what happened. Um, some see them represented in the four faces of the cherubim of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 1.10 it says, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the uh, four faces had the face of a lion, and on the, on the right side, each had the forehand, the four had the face of an ox, and on the left side, each had four face of an eagle. And many see the Gospels in these four representations. Matthew again wrote to the Jews, that was his audience, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, King of the Jews. Therefore, it focuses on the teachings and saying of Jesus regarding the Jewish fulfillment. We'll see this, okay? So it's important when you read a gospel, who is the writer and what, who is the audience? Because the internal evidence, we'll see, will confirm whether you're right or wrong. Uh, Matthew forms a natural bridge between the Old and the New Testament in fulfillment of Malachi's promise of the coming Messiah, the Lion, the King of the Jews. It was the most widely read gospel in the early church. Um, the French critic, Ramon, said the following about the gospel of Matthew, and I'm quoting, the most important book which has ever been written. To who were the promises made in the Old Testament? To the Jews, the people of God. The connection is very obvious, it's very simple. It's natural from Malachi to Matthew. Mark wrote to the Romans, portraying Jesus as the servant of man, the ox, focusing on his works. It's a very fast gospel. If you remember you, when we studied it, the key word immediately after these things. It's real fast and compressed gospel. Luke wrote to the Greek, representing Jesus as the son of man, the perfect man. 
without sin, focusing on his humanity. And uh, he is the face of a man there in Ezekiel. And John, now, he's not a synoptic gospel, but John is declaring the Son of God incarnate, the eagle. And um, he takes certain seven signs, seven miracles, different things like that, that you might believe that he is the Son of God and believing you might have eternal life. John is writing to the believer or the church. Matthew to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Greek, John to the church. Okay? So the audience is very important. And when you go through those Gospels, you, it'll, what, he's, what is said and the content will make more sense because who it's being directed to. Interesting, the four Gospels make up 48 to 50% of the New Testament. They're very important. Now, many have tried to make a harmony of the Gospels. I think it's a mistake. There's nothing wrong with giving the, the uh, parallel passages and to supplement to know what's going on. But God didn't want one Gospel. Because as we've mentioned, there is a particular focus and audience in the way this material is put together. As we'll see, Matthew is not in chronological order. It's in blocks. And this material that God directed by the Spirit of God to put in that order, not in chronology, but in the order that was there. Remember, these men spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Second Peter chapter 1, 19-21 says, not of their own will or the impulse, but as God carried them along. Now, the authenticity and authorship, um, first of all, the external evidence. The Christian community and church fathers of the first four centuries believed and accepted that Matthew was the author. I'm always amused at modern scholarship when they come up and they say, well, you know, Matthew didn't write it. All right. So those guys who are closer to the explosion can't tell you what happened, huh? You can know much better now. And, of course, they lean to their own understanding. And, uh, and this is their failure. Papias lived 70 to 155 A.D. And he said, quote, Matthew wrote the divine oracles in Hebrew dialect, 125 A.D. Now, keep that in mind. We're going to make a correction on that Hebrew dialect, okay? He wrote... Now Matthew compiled the Lahia, the word in Hebrew dialect. That's his direct quote. He adds that each person translated the Hebrew Lahia as best as he could. Okay, keep these things in mind, what he's saying. But when did Papias, or what did he mean by Lahia? That's the question. And he never says he saw them whatever the Lachia was, nor did he ever found any of them in use. So what we take from extra-biblical information, we have to judge it by the gospel, the word of God. If it contradicts it, then we have to throw it out. If it goes along with it and gives credible evidence that doesn't contradict, then we accept it. Linsky, the Greek scholar, says, quote, 
He uses the errors when he tells, speaking about Papias, when he tells about the use to which they were put. This means that he is reporting an interesting historical fact and that in his time, this lochia uh, were not any longer in use and probably were not even any longer known, whatever they were. But automatically they equate the lochia with the gospel. There's the problem. Irenaeus lived in 130 to 200 AD and he said, quote, Matthew put forth his written gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue. Interesting. He wrote that Matthew issued a gospel in Hebrew at the time when Peter and Paul were preaching and founding the church at Rome, 64 to 65. But the church had been founded long before that day. And not by the apostles, but by the Christian converts who went to Rome, the book of Romans tells us. So here again is a good example of what we believe and accept by external evidence if it contradicts the evidence within the scriptures. Very, very important. If this is an obvious error in history, which it clearly is, could it be that Iranians like Papias call these lochia in Hebrew a gospel? Origen lived 82 to 254 AD. He said, Matthew, once a tax collector, published it, meaning in parentheses, gospel, for the benefit of Jewish converts. So, to an extent, up to this point, there is an agreement that the audience was Jewish. There's a disagreement in the original language that it was written. And Origen was born in 185 AD. He says Matthew was the first to write and that he composed and issued a gospel in Hebrew for the Jewish believers. Once again, the same information is passed on by these guys. But he made this statement based on the tradition about Matthew. Tradition and evidence are two different things. Eusebius lived 264 to 340 A.D. And Matthew, quote, quote, composed in their native language, he says. He also gathered these traditional opinions for his church uh, history, expressing himself in the same way. You're familiar with the Dedeke. We've mentioned it before. It was a writing on the teachings of the apostles for scrutinizing false teachers. And it attested to the authenticity of Matthew's gospel also. There's no mention of the Hebrew, but the fact that Matthew did write it. Later on, Jerome, in the second and a half, the second half of the fourth century, um, thought he had discovered Matthew's Hebrew gospel in Aramaic, 340 to 420 AD. The gospel of the Nazarenes, in quotations, or the gospel of the Hebrews, a Jewish Christian sect. But he himself later discovered his mistake. So, this covers from 150 to 325 A.D. There has never been found any evidence 
of a Hebrew book of Matthew. We'll go into a little bit what the modern scholars say about this and how they compile it together. But uh, as far as we know, there's testimony to it, but no evidence at all. The general consensus was that Matthew wrote in Hebrew then, according to them, and later translated into the Greek because Papias stated it and others. Now, let's go along with this. This Hebrew Aramaic text is called, by the modern scholars, Q. Okay? But there has never been evidence of this Q manuscript, as I stated. The problem being, if Matthew wrote the original in Hebrew and followed my train of thought, then that would be the most valuable and reliable. The original is always the most valued, okay? In the Old Testament, in those times, there was no printing presses. The original was the most valuable. And when they copied it, they copied it because it had been worn out, and they counted the letters, the spaces. I don't want to go through all the stuff that we went through in our study, how they um, transferred it. And if there was one space off, they would burn it, or they would reject it, okay? So if you go along with this Q manuscript, then you're doing violence to the reliability of going from the original to a translation, but you can't produce the original? And if Matthew translated it, would it still hold second place? Because it would be a translation, right? It'd have to. But nothing's ever said about that. If someone else translated, as some of the hypotheses state, Who is he? Who was he? They say around 65, around 90. To the Greek, then why was the authorship attributed to Matthew by every church father and not the interpreter? And in fact, that interpreter would be writing a pseudopographic book, writing that book in the name of another person, but we don't find that. Why do we not have any record of the protest or questioning the validity of the hypothetical unknown translator in history? So these people, they go to a place like Fuller Seminary and other places, and they get a Ph.D. in a hypothesis that is so off the wall, and they're called doctors. Dodo degrees. Stick to the scriptures. Simple. And what does the hypothesis do to the doctrine of inspiration of scripture? It destroys it. Wow. Many today believe Matthew in the Greek is the original, including myself, not a translation in view that Q has never ever been seen by any person, in view that Q has never been discovered, even to the present day, it never existed. Just like evolution. 
there is not one trace of evidence for any transitional form. Now, if there's manuscript translations, there should be some transitional manuscripts <laughs> or evidence or commentary. But there is not. Now, the internal evidence, Matthew is listed as an apostle, eighth in his own gospel, seventh in the other two, Matthew 10, 2 through 4. Then you have Luke three sixteen and Luke 6, um, 14 through 16, where there Matthew is listed as one of the apostles. Matthew describes himself as the publican, by the way, though he never identifies himself as the author in Matthew 10, 3. But he is the author. But he doesn't say it. But the evidence is all over. Matthew was at the seat of customs in Capernaum, as you know, and answered the call of Jesus. Jesus um, gave a feast at his house and invited tax collectors and sinners, Matthew 9, 9 through 10. Remember, the Pharisees were upset because Jesus was there with sinners. His surname is Levi. Mark two fourteen, Luke five twenty seven. His name means gift of God, Matthew. Great name. He's the son of Alphaeus, according to Mark two fourteen. And Matthew's old profession prepared him for the recording of the gospel through um uh, though despised by the Jews, because remember, publicans, tax collectors, were the lowest of lowest. Do you remember when the Pharisee went to pray at the temple, and he he, he prayed, you know, thank you, God, I'm not like other men, and he looked down on the publican that was there just saying, Lord, propitiate me, a sinner. And so... Matthew would be, in fact, be considered a traitor because he was a Jew collecting taxes on the Jew. <laughs> a tax collector. Incredible. Matthew was present at the ascension of Jesus, if you remember, in Acts chapter 1. In fact, Matthew is the only eyewitness author. Mark wrote his gospel from Peter, remember. Luke was not an eyewitness. He did interviews and gathered information. John, John didn't write a synoptic gospel. And he wrote way in the 90s, the gospel of John, last. Matthew was present at Pentecost also. In the upper room in Acts 2. Matthew was the only eyewitness, as I said, and traveled with Jesus uh, besides John. But John writes his gospel way later. Uh, Root wrote his gospel, as I said, from interviews. And he goes into real detail. And we went uh, through that as he uses the word autopsy. And when someone does an autopsy, you tear a body apart and you get every detail out of it. And he wrote to Theophilus, friend of God, to give him in order the things of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Very, very clear. Now, the place and date 
some believe it's either written in the land of Israel. Now, when you read critical commentaries, they'll say Palestine. I don't use the word Palestine because it's not a biblical word. And it's a, a word, a name that was given to the land of Israel by the Romans insulting the Jews. This is where you get the deception today of a Palestinian nation and a Palestinian people. The Jews kept revolting. And finally, in 132 to 35, in their last revolt, Rome got tired, um, just killed a whole bunch of Jews, sold the rest off in prison. They salted the entire land of Israel and renamed it Palestinia after their perennial enemies, the Philistines. Study history. There has never been a Palestinian people or nation until after 1955 with the PLO Yasser Arafat. An invented history. All right? Listen. Abraham, a pagan Jew, called out by God. He's now a Hebrew. Worship Yahweh. He takes a woman from Egypt. He has a son, Ishmael. God says, that's not the one I told you about. Send him away. Send him to Arabia. How do you get a Jew, an Egyptian, sent off to Arabia, who marries another Egyptian? How do you get a Palestinian out of that? It's like saying, I'm going to cross my German shepherd with a weenie dog and I'm going to get a horse. You're making it up. Follow the Bible. Call CNN. Let them in on the news. Okay? Amazing. Because people are ignorant today to history. Rather than studying, they, they just swallow hook, line, and sinker altogether of indoctrination. So... I always refer to the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, which God gave to Israel. Okay? So I don't like to use the word Palestine because that comes from that insult and it was carried through even to the British mandate as they betrayed Israel then handed the land over while making attempts and already plans to betray Israel by the hands of the Arabs as soon as they declared their independence. Once again, do your history study. You'll see that all through there. Now, it's either in the land of Israel or Syria in Antioch. One of the two. But even if we didn't know where it was written, it was written. You know, if you don't know where you were born, who cares? You're born, right? That's the important thing. Now, the date is a little more difficult because just like everything else, but again, we can look around at some evidence uh, the dates are given from 45 all the way to 140 A.D., which is crazy. Uh, there is no need to even go beyond 70 A.D. because um, um, the Gospels, all of them imply and assume that the temple was still standing. So to go beyond 70 is wrong by the internal evidence. Probably... 6263, somewhere in there A.D., because you have the rebellion and uh, the burning of Rome, 64, 65, all of that. So somewhere in there. It could even be as early as 50-something, you know. 
the, the Gospels were written fairly close um, to the death of Jesus Christ, not far from that. That's why the evidence is so incredibly valuable, because most historical things are not recorded with accuracy until way after. And we've given you some evidence of that with historical documents that were never doubted in the universities, and they're three, four, five, seven hundred years after the fact. Okay? So um, if you apply that to the scriptures, the scriptures win hands down. Now, the characteristics of, of Matthew, Matthew presents the messianic king according to the scriptures. In um, Matthew one twenty three, we have the virgin birth of Jesus Christ according to or the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. His birthplace, Bethlehem in 2.6, according to Micah 5.2. His return from Egypt after his death, the death of Herod, in Matthew 2.15, according to Hosea 11.1, 1, and the killing of the infants by Herod in Matthew 2.18, fulfilled by fulfilling Jeremiah 31.15. His residing, his residing in Nazareth, you have in Matthew 2.23, fulfilling Isaiah 11.1, 1, and Jeremiah 33.15. The forerunner, of Jesus, John the Baptist's cousin, in Matthew 3, 3, in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice crying in the wilderness. His ministry to Galilee of the Gentiles is given to us in Matthew 4, 15, and 16, fulfilling the proclamation of Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. The Son is given. His healing ministry by the atonement that he bore our sicknesses is recorded for us in Matthew 8.17 in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.4 and other passages. His being a servant to the Gentiles in Matthew 12.18-21 in fulfillment of that great servant of Isaiah 42.1-4. His parabolic teaching revealing secret things in Matthew 13.35, fulfilling Psalm 78.2. Mystery in the sense that they were hidden in the past but now made known, and they're no longer secret. He spoke things that weren't revealed prior to the fact, and he does this there in Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. His entry to Jerusalem, Matthew 21.5, Fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, Behold, he rides to you lowly on the coal of a donkey, fulfilling his first coming right on time. His arrest that led to all forsaking him, Matthew 26.56, fulfilling Zechariah 13.7, that should be fresh in your mind, we just finished Zechariah a while back. That's internal evidence, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that you have to just reject, but you cannot deny. I have no problem if you say, well, I don't believe it. Well, okay, that's your choice. But it's evidence that you're just shutting your eyes to. It's very, very clear. Now, Matthew presents the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven appears 32 times. The phrase kingdom of heaven is unique to Matthew and does not appear 
anywhere else in the New Testament. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, was the first to use the expression, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 3, 2. Matthew began his ministry courageously declaring, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry as John the Baptist was thrown in prison, he did so by making the same declaration. In Matthew 4, 17, uh, he says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice one very clear observation. The kingdom of heaven being at hand goes hand in hand with repent. It's like peanut butter and jelly, tortillas and beans. They go together. Today, the emerging church is talking all about the kingdom, but not repentance. It's not a gospel, ladies and gentlemen. You remove sin and repentance, you've got Cotton candy, not a gospel. J. Vernon McGee, the late J. Vernon McGee, says the following, quote, The phrase indicates the kingdom of heaven, and this is what he's talking about, indicates God's rule over the earth, referring to the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming of the king from heaven to set up a kingdom on his, this earth with heaven's standard. The concept is not new, he points out, and very clearly, as we have before, Daniel 2.44, 7.14, and 7.27 speaks about the kingdom of heaven. Who is he talking to? Who's his audience? The Jews. Who is Daniel talking about in his book? The Jews. Very clear, the phrase is not new, to the Jew. He goes on to say, it will be seen that the term kingdom of heaven is a progressive term in the gospel of Matthew. It assumes the mystery formed during the days of the rejection of the king, but the king becomes a sower in the world. Matthew 13, the sower went out to sow seed. The kingdom will be established on this earth by Jesus at the second coming of the king. Matthew 24. Matthew 25. There's three important discourses. The Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7. The Mystery of the Kingdom's Parables, Matthew 13. And the Olivet Discourse of the Coming of Jesus Christ, Matthew 24 and 25. Very, very important. Now, the Kingdom of God, this phrase appears five times. Matthew 6.33, 12.28, 19.24, and 43. The kingdom of God is not synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is a broader term encompassing all the creation of God, including angels. The church is not the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, but it's part of of both of them. The church will not bring in the kingdom, but will return with Jesus who will set up the kingdom. So the church is part of the kingdom of, of heaven on earth and part of the kingdom of God, but it's not the kingdom of either. Okay? It's completely different. We are the bride of Christ 
who is waiting to be married to Christ, the Old Testament wife is divorced and put away for unfaithfulness. There's a big difference between a woman who's been married, divorced and put away, and a virgin who's looking for a wedding. If you don't know the difference, do some homework. Don't confuse them. Today the church teaches that the church is spiritual Israel, the new Israel. Absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. They teach, therefore, replacement theology that God is through with Israel. You couldn't be more wrong than anything else. The church, God is not through with Israel. The church is not Israel. What do you do with Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 with Israel? God says, not all that say are Israel, Israel, but the remnant is going to be saved. So I reject replacement theology. The majority of the church teaches it, by the way. The word kingdom appears 53 times. Jesus is called the son of David nine times. He's the king of the Jews. Matthew alone quotes the words of Jesus about his throne and his glory. In Matthew 19, 28 and 25, 31. Matthew alone calls Jerusalem the holy city and the city of the king. In Matthew 4, 5 and 5, 35. Jesus is not only presented as the king of the Jews, but the judge of the world. Matthew 19, 28, 24, 27 through 31, 25, 31 through 46. There you have the judgment of the nations. The first thing Jesus does when he returns and we come back with him is he judges the nations, the sheep from the goats, on how they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. Context, context, context. The five wise and foolish virgins is not the rapture. Sorry to disappoint you. That's a wrong interpretation. The context tells you that. At the end of chapter 24, Jesus already returned to the earth and we've come back with him. It's those people who are waiting to come for the Lord to come back. He's judging those that have gone through the great tribulation. The tribulation is not for the church. The tribulation is for Israel to prepare them for their Messiah. Don't mistake it. The kingdom of Jesus is spiritual, but will be manifested on the earth now and in the future. We are looking for a spiritual kingdom. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. The Jew in their mindset, the present age, the evil age, the age to come, the kingdom age on earth, the millennial kingdom. That's why the disciples kept asking Jesus all the time, are you now going to restore the kingdom? And then after he was with them for 40 days before he ascended, are you not, just, it's not, not for you to know, just go tarry in Jerusalem till you be due in power on high. They didn't see the church age. Then after the, Pente the day of Pentecost, all of a sudden, they were illuminated. They understood it now. The church age. Now, Matthew presents his gospel to Jews again. It's Jewish in nature. Again, the evidence, the genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When you get to Matthew's genealogy in 1.1, 1, 1, uh, the wise men sought the king of the Jews in Matthew 2.2. 2.
The key phrases that appear often is that it might be fulfilled or it is written. Then Jesus says, you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, you have heard that it has been said. He's talking about the tradition, the oral tradition, the Mishnah, the Talmud. And they all quoted the rabbis. Jesus quoted nobody. He was supreme. You have heard them as I say to you. He didn't quote anybody. Jewish customs are not explained in Matthew due to the fact that he's writing to the Jews who understood them. Simple. The law is key in the Sermon on the Mount as the law was given to the Jews 50 days after the exodus at Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit is given to the church 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a denunciation of Jewish rulers and scribes for corrupt traditions because they were really uh, adding hurt to the people. They weren't helping the people. They were keeping people from coming to God, having them abhor the works of God because of their corruption and deceit. There is the absence of any Latin words in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew prepares Jews for the last days. Persecution, Matthew 24. But Matthew never excludes the Gentiles. That's the beauty of it. His target, his audience is Jewish, but he doesn't exclude the Gentiles. Now you remember that Paul was called by God for the Gentiles, apostle to the Gentiles, but he didn't exclude the Jew. He always went to the synagogue first, right? But his call was specific. Peter was called to the Jews, but he didn't ignore the Gentiles. He was sent to the house of Cornelius first, right? All right? So the same with Matthew is very evident. Only Matthew mentions the church, by the way. No other gospel mentions the church. He mentions it two times in Matthew 16, 18 and 18, 17. So Matthew really looks further into the future than any of the other two synoptics. Uh, and John doesn't mention it, though he's dealing with it. In fact, in, in John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus mentions the rapture for the first time. If you believe in God, believe also in me, and my Father's house are many abiding places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the rapture, ladies and gentlemen. There's a distinction between us coming back with him to set up the kingdom and him coming back to receive us to himself. First Thessalonians, he comes back for us in the rapture. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him to set up the kingdom. Clear? Real simple. Perspective is important and context, okay? Now, Matthew presents the gospel in a systematic arrangement, not a chronological one. First four chapters are in chronology, one through four. The Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life, five through seven. Matthew eight and nine, ten of the twenty miracles are grouped. Matthew ten, the instructions to the disciples. Matthew thirteen, as we've already stated, the parables of the kingdom and the absence of the king. What would be happening? When we get there, they'll be interesting. The term of discipleship is given in Matthew 18. 
in the Olivet Discourse, the return of, to set up the kingdom by the king, Matthew 24 and 25. And so, Matthew, by the direction of the Spirit of God, writes this stuff, even as Paul, his epistles, anointed by the Spirit of God, to be handed down to the church until the Lord returns. And it's such a privilege and what an awesome, um, just a huge privilege that we have the scriptures, that we can depend on the scriptures and don't have to doubt the scriptures, that you can read here and you can believe what God has said and that he is the same today as yesterday as he ever will be forevermore. Now, the purpose of the gospel origin said is for converts from Judaism. Genealogy of the Old Testament fulfilling the scriptures is key, he said. Also to show Jesus to be the promised Messiah and King, as we've implied, and to provide the words of Jesus in teaching for instruction and guidance for the citizens of the kingdom, as Matthew, the teacher, lays it out. But also to convert the lost in the Great Commission. Every believer has that great responsibility and privilege to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody proclaimed the gospel to me. It came to my ears. I had to make a decision. The same thing happened with you. And since that day, God has used us to minister to others and they've had the same opportunity. And if they've taken advantage of that privilege, now they are being used by God to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to others as they have been radically transformed from darkness to light, from death to life. And I'll tell you what, um, when you allow Jesus Christ to do the work that he said he can do, it's just an incredible miracle because he needs your permission. As powerful as God is, he will never force himself upon anybody, nobody. He respects the will of a person. If they are dead set on going to hell, Jesus will allow that. It will break his heart, but he will not force you. No one will be in heaven saying, doggone it, I want to go to hell. But if you end up in hell, you will hear many, including yourself, I could have gone to heaven and I chose to go to hell. Wow. What would men and women give right now that are in hell to hear the gospel one more time? The person of Jesus, the promised Messiah, born of a virgin. Matthew twenty one twenty three, fulfilling Isaiah seven fourteen, going back to Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman. From the beginning. The priest and lawgiver, you have heard it said, I say to you, the prophet to come, a greater than Jonah, is here. Matthew twelve forty one. The king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, Pilate, it is as you say, Matthew twenty seven eleven. Wow. As you read Matthew over and over again as we go through it, 
Try to outline it. Break it up. I've given you some ideas of division. There's different ways that people divide it. Um, people have tried to divide it through the phrases from that time Jesus began, which is found in from Matthew 1, 1 to 4.15, and then um, from 4.17 to 16.20, and then 16.21 to the end, that threefold aspect. The um, person, the proclamation, the passion of Jesus. There are others who go by the phrase, and then when Jesus had come to the end of these sayings, and they find these as natural divisions in Matthew 7, 28, 11, 1, 13, 53, 19, 1, and 26, 1. And sometimes they're nifty little divisions, but they sometimes don't fit exactly. You force an outline. An outline has to be natural. The natural divisions flow. I like Beacon's commentary that uh, the outline they have laid out. Let me just walk you through it so you get an idea. Um, from chapter 1 to chapter uh, 4, verse 25, he labels the preparation of the Messiah. He has the genealogy of Jesus in the first 17 verses of chapter 1, the birth of Jesus in verse 18 to 25 of chapter 1. The childhood of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 1 through 23. The ministry of John the Baptist in chapter 3, 1 through 12. The baptism of Jesus in 3, 13 through 17. The temptations of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. And the beginning of the Galilee ministry in Matthew 4, 12 through 25. Then you have the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 29. The setting of the sermon, the first two verses of chapter 5. The nature of the disciples, chapter 5, verse 3 through 16. The righteousness of the disciples, Matthew 5, 17 through 48. And the religious, or the religion of the disciples, Matthew 6, 1 through 34. The life of the disciples in 7, 1 through 29. Then in the third division, he goes to chapter 8, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 34. You have three healing miracles in chapter 8, 1 through 17. The cost of discipleship in chapter 8, 18 through 22. Three more miracles in 8, 23 through 9, 8. And then mercy and not sacrifice in chapter 9, 9 through 17. Three group of miracles in 9, 18 through 34. Then he has the second discourse, instruction to the 12, when you get to chapter 9, verse 35, all the way to chapter 10, verse 42. 9, 35 to 38, the need for labors. 10, 1 through 42, the mission of the 12. And then you have the narrative resumed, rejecting the Messiah in Matthew 11, 1 to 12, 50. Jesus and John the Baptist is given to us in chapter 11, 1 through 19. Jesus and the cities in Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Jesus and the simple in 11, 25 through 30. And Jesus and the Pharisees in 12, 1 through 45. And Jesus and his family in 12, 46 through 50. Then you have the third discourse, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, um, 52 verses. The setting is verse 1 and 2, the seven parables in 3 through 50, and the sequel in 51 to 52. 
Then you have the narrative resumed again, the journeys of Jesus, Matthew 13, 55 to 17, 2. Jesus and John rejected in Matthew 13, 53 to 14, 12. Further miracles, chapter 14, 13 to 36. Ceremonial versus moral defilement in chapter 15, 1 through 20. More miracles in 15, 21 through 39. The blind Pharisees seen disciples in 16, 1 to 17, 27. Then you have the fourth discourse, the Christian community in 18, 1 through 35. The Christian and children, Matthew 18, 1 through 14. The Christian and his brother, 18, 15 through 35. And then you have the narrative resumed again, discipleship and controversy, 19, 1 to 23, 39. Discipleship, 19, 1 to 2034 controversy 211 to 2339 then you have the fifth discourse the olivet discourse of matthew 24 1 all the way to chapter 25 verse 46 the end of the age matthew 24 to 51 the three parables on preparedness 25 1 through 46 and last you have the passion Matthew 26, 1 to 27, 66. The preparation for death, Matthew 21, or 26, I'm sorry, verse 1 to 27, 66. Death and burial, Matthew 27, 32 to 66. And you have, last of all, and very, very important, the resurrection, Matthew 28, 1 through 20. The day of the resurrection, verse 1 through 15. The Great Commission, 16 to 20. There you have the Gospel of Matthew. Begin your outlines with a small book. The book of Jude. The book of Philemon. Has an introduction. Has a conclusion. There's a body in between. Key words. Key passages. Natural divisions. Pivotal terms. And learn to outline a book. There's an introduction, there's a body, there's a flow. Just like when you write a letter. Dear John, introduction. Maybe the first paragraph or just Dear John, the body, by, the conclusion. Okay? Everybody writes like that. Whether it's a short introduction, a long introduction, but there's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. These books are no different. But you've got to do a little digging. Then you move from the one chapter to two chapters to three chapters to four to five chapters all the way to get to Isaiah. Sixty-six chapter books. Then you have all kinds of experience. You can tear it apart. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept. And as you walk with God 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you become a man and a woman of God's word. To divide the word of truth rightly. Pulling people out of the fire. And being able to point out deception. To warn the people of God. So may God give us wisdom as we continue. And we start our studies on Sunday morning. And death. And verse by verse on Sunday night. Father thank you for your grace. Your love and your goodness. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for just the privilege we have to gather together. 
I pray for every person here and, Lord, those over the Internet. And I pray, the Lord, you would continue to instruct us and guide us as we search out your word, Lord, that you might speak to us personally about our lives and what you have for us and what you want us to do for you, Lord. The Lord, you are the one who commands us, not a pastor, not an elder, but you, Lord. And so we thank you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your mercy. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet and you don't know Jesus Christ. And then God has allowed you to hear. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that you're a sinner in need of salvation and you call upon Jesus, you shall be saved, the Bible says. That's God's Word, not mine. He says, if you see yourself as a sinner, you agree with him, you can call upon him. If you believe that he died in your place, he tasted death for you, then you can call upon him knowing that he's made full payment for the sins of the world, which include your sins also. And he will make a new creation out of you. Old things will pass away, everything become new, and he will give you divine nature, and you will be born immediately into the kingdom of God. But when you're born into the kingdom of God, you're born into warfare immediately. Right now you're walking with the enemy and you don't even know it. The minute you're born again, oh, you're going to meet the enemy. Because <laughs> he's not very happy. Now you belong to God. But God is greater than he that's in the world. So if you want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, this is your prayer to him. and He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name.